You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to the Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. In this podcast, we have three guests, Marie Crosland, Lisa Clinic, and Gabriel Villaflor. Together in this podcast, we examine how to maintain usual operations in an aged care home during this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. What are the challenges and how do we overcome these challenges? Marie, could you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing over the last month or so? I'm the CEO of Napier Street Aged Care, a small not-for-profit organisation in South Melbourne. And primarily the focus of my job over this last month or six weeks, eight weeks, has been really in managing COVID-19 or managing and ensuring that we're ready and prepared for COVID-19. Thank you. Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Joe, and thanks for the invite to be on this podcast. So my role is I'm the Director of Aged Care Services at Ballarat Health Services in Ballarat. We have nine aged care facilities and one psychogeriatric unit. And my role over the last few weeks has been really trying to support the management team within the aged care service to continue to ensure that our residents and staff are safe, but still getting a great experience living in the facilities. It's certainly been a busy and I think an exhausting time for everyone. Gabriel, welcome. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing. My name is Gabriel Villafleur. I'm a clinical care manager in Napier Street Aged Care in South Melbourne. We're a standalone facility and a non-profit organization. My main task for the past few weeks was basically making sure our residents are safe, our staff are safe, and making sure that the staff's well supported with the things that we need. So aged care and the care homes provide a place for people to live who can no longer manage at home. It provides a service for carers who require respite. It provides personal and health care for the residents or facilitates improving the quality of life for residents. Given these responsibilities are part of the normal everyday operations, we can't simply stop doing those because of COVID. I wanted to come to really the first question around The models of care that we have to achieve quality of life were not designed to operate in a pandemic. For example, we can't take people out as easily. We have to maintain social distancing. There aren't communal activities. There's enormous pressure on the staff to help families stay connected with residents. There's enormous pressure on everyone because people have been scared about COVID There's a need to talk and explain more about what's going on. And there's an increasing requirement to report to supervisors about what's happening to reassure everyone. Marie, if I can turn to you, have I left anything out in terms of the extra challenges in terms of the care that needs to be provided? 
And no, I don't think anything's been left out, but I think every single department within an aged care facility has been affected from the catering department through to the cleaning, through to the care, through to the admin. Everyone has additional tasks to attend to and everyone's job is a little bit more complex and a little bit more difficult and they have a few more duties to attend. So I think the pressure is across all of the aged care staff and the clinical staff obviously bear a major brunt of that but equally the other departments do as well. Lisa, what's been your experience? Yeah, look, I agree with Marie that the model of care has definitely changed, but I think society has changed as well. So we have restrictions just as as members of society in regards to civil liberties have been affected and, and our freedom of movement and things. So I think it's just that's just been exaggerated within our um, facilities and mainly because we're looking after the most vulnerable people regarding COVID-19. It's extraordinarily dangerous for an older person to get this virus. And I think as people working in the sector, we understand how truly vulnerable these people are. The model of care was already being scrutinised by the Royal Commission. And I think that this has just further enhanced that scrutiny and put the whole sector under further pressure that we're already under from the Royal Commission. And There was definitely increased workloads across the service, but particularly around IT, cleaning and some of the support services, so engineering and catering. We also increased obviously our lifestyle and clinical care as well to try and assist residents with maintaining social activity and connectedness with their family and friends. Gabriel, what did you see? First of all, I agree with Marie and Lisa. First thing that's actually added up tasks to um, the care team, basically. And one of the people that's actually affected with this COVID-19 is mainly our residents. We've actually seen spikes of anxiety, behaviours, depression that we haven't actually seen from our residents. More tasks has been added on to catering, basically the delivery of the food. Monitoring has been added on as well to our care team to make sure that the residents are asymptomatic, temp checks, saturations, coughing. So we make sure all of those are taken into consideration and a swab has to be taken immediately. Then we need to implement the precautions and PPE. So these are on top of the normal things that we basically do. With regards to time, We have initiated twice a day monitoring for all of the residents in which we need to make sure we've got the documentation in place. Now, the documentation that we have to actually put in, that's where the time actually takes place. Temp checks are all easy, but when you put it into the document and make sure that everything's there reflected, that we've actually monitored everything, that takes a lot of time. This is on top of our normal routine documentation bowel. It probably would have added 30 minutes to an hour for each of the shift just to do these tasks on top of our usual routines. So that's 30 minutes for every staff member? Give or take. That's just the monitoring. Now, the moment the single resident is actually symptomatic, it has to be a one-on-one. One staff has to take care of this resident. That means I have to remove that staff 
on the regular list that he has and distribute the other residents who's asymptomatic to other to the other staff who's not handling a COVID suspect residence. So that mainly gives out more job to the rest of the team. And then you actually allocate one person to a resident who may or may not have a COVID virus. Do you think that the focus on COVID-19 should stay all-encompassing, that that's the main thing that we need to be worrying about? I guess I'll go to you first, Lisa. I think it's one of several things that we should be worrying about. I've noticed over the eight or ten weeks that we've been involved in this that uh, there has been a very narrow focus on COVID-19 and I have no problem with that. As I keep saying, it's a very dangerous virus. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be also ensuring that quality continues and that safe care is provided at a more broader way. So I have been a bit concerned around how we are very much consumed by COVID-19 and I get worried that we are forgetting to continue monitoring other processes such as the use of psychotropic medications, chemical restraint, physical restraint the consumer experience while they're living in our facilities. But the high-risk areas, what's going on with falls, what's going on with pressure ulcers, what's going on with um, polypharmacy, those things just aren't being discussed at all. And it, it does concern me. There's many risks to an older person and COVID-19 is very front and centre at the moment. But we have done an excellent job in Australia with looking after the whole population and in particular older people living in aged care facilities. We need, I think, we need to be also making sure that we are looking after them more holistically from a clinical risk point of view and quality improvement. Marie, what's your thoughts on it? I think over the last week, I have probably spent more time on a few other things, a few other planning and and strategy things because budget time and and all those things are coming up. So I've managed to spend a bit more time on those. But I think that predominantly still my time is being spent on COVID. And as we reintroduce visitors, I think that also is going to start taking a lot more time and how we keep managing that process as well because We have reintroduced visitors starting Monday, but it will be in a very controlled environment. So we'll have to wait and see how that actually pans out, whether it works, whether it doesn't. And so we'll be reviewing that on a daily basis. Gabriel, I wanted to come to you now and ask how the staff addressing issues around resident care, do they feel that we've been too preoccupied with COVID? And do they think that we need to get back to a a greater focus, as Lisa has said, on what we were doing beforehand? Yeah, to answer that, Joe, I'm going to get into the picture and what actually happened to the staff at the start of all of this. So at our end in Napier Street, when we initially had the, the first resident that we've actually swabbed, the reaction of the staff was unusual. We've had a flu outbreak before that we never really had people calling in sick. But when COVID started, the amount of people who called in sick was just difficult to handle. That was in the first couple of weeks of the COVID outbreak. Now, if I'm going to see, I've actually got one 
resident who we've swabbed just recently, and it wasn't the same reaction from the initial. I think the staff is getting used to this as a norm, having a, a resident being tested for COVID, having them donning the PPEs, making sure they haven't actually cross-contaminated disposal of the PPEs. They're getting used to it now. We fear that they might crash in the near future, in about three months, four months' time, that we keep up on doing this. But hats off to the staff. They've actually done a very, very well job on managing the situation. Okay, thank you. Just want to come back now. Lisa, given that we've got to balance this approach, what's your plan to to balance this? Will you create a separate portfolio for COVID-19 and treat that as just another clinical risk? Or will it remain central in your planning? Yeah, look, really good question, Joe. We're planning for this to go on in some form for the next 12 months. So COVID-19 is becoming identified more as a clinical risk, a very high one. Any, any change is stressful and the, cha- the rapid change that we've put in place and I imagine has gone across the sector has been very stressful for everybody, residents, relatives, friends, staff, everyone. And I think now that we are normalising some of that, that some of that stress is coming off. I think also we won't get as bad a flu season as we normally do. So I think that might be a a bit of a reprieve for us as well. But we are looking, look, we still have daily COVID-19 meetings and things. We're not taking our eye off the ball um, probably for another month or so. They'll continue at least. But we are also looking at our rates of PRN psychotropic medications compared to falls, compared to responsive behaviours. How is that changing? Has that changed? And it did. PRN use went up, almost doubled since we went into visitor restrictions. That started to settle down. But we are definitely looking at falls. We are definitely starting to analyse some of our other quality data that we normally would analyse, but we're trying to relate it into the new norm that we have under COVID-19. And how is it being impacted? And what do we actually need to start thinking about and changing because of the the changes COVID-19 has brought on to us as the facilities? So so that's where we're at at the moment. And I think that that we will continue to develop that and make that a little bit more sophisticated as we go along. So, Marie, I'll go to you first and then you, Lisa, about What's your strategies around admitting new clients going forward? So we currently are still admitting clients and have been for the whole time. It has been quite a different admission process because normally families would be very, very much involved with an admission and in the facility meeting and greeting everybody, getting to know the staff, getting to know the other residents and settling in their own resident. So all of that's not happening so much. So we are allowing families to come in when a resident is first admitted, but they're under a very strict protocol because that resident is isolated in their room until we have a negative COVID test from that person. The residents seem to be adapting to that. It is taking longer to settle a new resident in than it normally would. And I think that's about the relationship building. But I think we will continue that for some time, uh, I guess, until we've seen a second wave hopefully come and go relatively quickly. 
and see what that looks like. But at the moment, that would be our plans for admissions for some time to come. Lisa, do you have anything to add to that? We've just on Thursday put out a new criteria for admission and we have started to do admissions from the community. However, there is a full screening process. So we have been fortunate enough to trial a screening tool from Safer Care Victoria, which I think you're involved in, Joe. And we're trialling that as part of our new admissions screening process. They have to also be asymptomatic. Once they come in, they are monitored with temperature and screening for 14 days. In the future, I see that process staying in for some time. We see the threat of the virus coming into the facility via visitors, staff or new admissions. So we are doing a lot of screening around staff and visitors and we're doing the similar thing with with new admissions. Obviously, there are financial implications with slowing admissions or having fewer admissions coming in. Do you see these as having a longer-term impact on the operations of the facilities? So from a financial point of view, we have two masters, so the Commonwealth and the state. There has definitely been uh, financial implications on this, um, not only the empty beds, but also the higher use of staffing, the, the higher use of consumables around what Gabriel was saying about the PPE gear and things. There are huge cost implications for making the environment safe for everybody. And that's just going to continue on those costs while this COVID-19 is, is out in our community. Marie, this might not be a fair question, but do you think that COVID-19 will put some aged care facilities out of business? Uh, 100%, I think it will. I think the Stuart Brown reports prior to COVID-19 and feedback from the Royal Commission already was that many facilities were financially unviable. So I don't see how they will have got around not having additional expenses for staff and additional expenses for for PPE and other consumables. So I think it it will be the tipping point for many. The government have made some initiatives. So far, we haven't received notification about how or when that will be paid or how long it will go on for or any details around it. So any of those additional funds will help. But I think the sector was in need of additional funding to meet consumer expectations prior to this outbreak and the additional things we're having to do and will have to do for quite some time, I think will just continue to add to that financial pressure. I just wanted to touch on the maintaining lifestyle choices and I might go to you, Gabriel, first here about how are you and your team thinking about getting the residents engaged again and what will be the challenges? Restrictions mainly are the challenges right now, Joe. We have a resident who looks forward to the regular bus outings, but that's been suspended. We have a resident who has dementia, who loves her choir group. She sits in front of the choir group. So she was actually a participant of the choir and she was profoundly depressed. To work around her, basically, we actually needed to do one-on-one with her. 
So the lifestyle basically ends up sitting outside of a room, making sure she listens to the music while he's playing and they sing together. We're looking into online choir now, which the lifestyle team are just trying to extend as much resource that they can. What happens with meals? Because I think one of the things we all look forward to is sharing a meal with friends and colleagues and having the chance to talk. Sadly, the meals, they actually have to do it in their rooms. So it gets delivered into their rooms. This is something that our residents look forward to, sitting into the communal dining area, sitting with their seatmates, talking. And the, the first time we've actually stopped that, uh, the spike of depression and anxiety started. So far, it's settled down a bit, but it's actually triggered behaviors for residents that's got dementia and severe depression. To the, norm, to the regular residents that we have, they've been more understanding of the situation. So the, the last issue I wanted to cover in terms of normal operations is managing end-of-life care. There's been a lot of distress and sadness around the inability to be with loved ones when they die. And, you know, the community is fully aware of the restrictions uh, around who can attend a funeral. If I go to you first, Lisa, have you seen any difference in the management of end-of-life care and what are your hopes we'll be able to do in the future? Yeah, so I'm very fortunate that um, at Ballarat Health we do have the Grampians Regional Palliative Care team on site, so we have access to them. The only difference really that I've seen is we have been doing more phone consultation rather than the pal care team coming in. But the residential inreach nurse practitioner and pal care team have been working quite closely together to ensure that residents are receiving appropriate and timely um, end-of-life care. So we haven't seen that big a difference. We also have, you know, in of medications and one of our consultant physicians also put together a regional end-of-life, COVID-19 end-of-life protocol for us. So that was done very early on. So from my point of view, it hasn't changed a great deal, but I think I'm quite fortunate because of the organisation that I, I work in, that we have got those resources available. Marie, what's been the experience with your facility? Um, I think that Gabriel will be the one that speaks to this better than me. I'll pass that over to Gabriel to answer. Yeah, um, we are also blessed that we've been supported with a Bethlehem Palliative Care, who we've been doing regular phone consultations in support to how we manage our palliative care and end-of-life care. With regards to end-of-life residents, we actually allowed family members to come in in full checks, PPEs as well, to spend time with their relatives, with their mom and dad, who's actually undergoing end-of-life. Yeah, Joe, just to clarify as well, with our visitor restrictions for end of life, we do have extended visitor hours for people who are end of life as well. And they, so that's up to two hours. Yeah, so that, that's quite different to our normal visitor restrictions. Looking ahead to the next six to 18 months, if predictions are correct that COVID will be with us for that length of time, 
Gabriel, what are the three things you think will make the greatest difference to resident care? This will depend on their preference, Joe. I've sat down with a couple of the residents and on one of our discussions and then asked them, what would we be able to do to make things better? One answered, I need to see my family regularly. The other one answer is, I don't really care if I get COVID. I'm at the end part of my life. And I want to enjoy the sunshine, walks to the markets and everything. It will depend on what they prefer to do. And it will depend on what we are allowed to do. Yes, the dignity of risk has to be entertained. But then again, if the government restrictions are there, our hands are actually tied to the limited stuff that we need, we can do for our residents. Marie, what are the three things you think will have the greatest impact for the lives of residents, caring for staff and the sector as a whole? So the first is probably financial assistance. And financial assistance only because it will provide the extra resources for the staff to be able to use, which can then flow on directly to giving more one-on-one care and allowing residents to do the things that they want to do and enable them to do it in a safe manner under COVID-19 and into the future in that manner. And I think the most important thing for staff is that they get continued support, that they get clear evidence and clear directives from governments. And by clear, I'm meaning that we're getting a lot of different messages from a federal level to a state level. You're hearing things that New South Wales says something and Victoria says something else and Western Australia says something differently. So it all becomes quite confusing. And I think if there's just one clear voice and one clear message, then staff will feel much more supported that they're getting the right information to make their choices as well with the things they're doing to support their residents. And what do you think will have the greatest impact for residents? I think the greatest impact for residents will be the facilities returning to having more people around and probably having less of a restriction on visitors. Although I think they do understand at the moment why that's happening. I think that they want to see that wider range of people. They want to see the hairdressers. They want to see the volunteer singers coming in and they want that lifestyle. They want to go on their bus outings and the things that they really enjoy and value. Thank you. Lisa, what are your top three? Look, I'd probably go, probably thinking as a sector and as a, you know, from a learnings point of view, I think this has given us as a sector a really good opportunity to look at how we do actually support each other and we actually I think should be celebrating and patting ourselves on the back for the great job that we've done across Australia in regards to looking after and and keeping people living in residential care pretty safe for a lot of the time and a lot of effort's gone into that what I would like to see is what have we learned from it? How can we take this forward into other outbreaks such as flus and gastro? And I also think it's a great opportunity for us to figure out how we do share resources and rather than reinventing the wheel all the time. But I really do think that it 
it is a quite an exciting um, opportunity to look at how we can take some of the learnings that we've put in place and some of the processes we've utilised to make sure that our residents are safe and our staff are safe. There's a lot of learnings out of this whole pandemic and out of the whole process, particularly in resi aged care. And I hope that we do take that opportunity to sit back and reflect and learn those lessons. All right, thank you very much, Lisa, Gabriel and Marie. The only final comment I have is one of the things that I'd like to see is that the aged care staff have the same status as the hospital medical and nursing staff and are recognised as being essential. I think that would make a big difference overall is that level of recognition. So with that, thank you very much.